and welcome to episode 117 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. And uh, I was thinking of a new a new tagline, Shane. Oh, okay, okay. What we do you got? Say, bringing astronomy down to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that sounds like a T-shirt. <laughs> anyway, I'm just I'm just getting to shade here today. So we've we've been having a lot of chats and and playing with with our audio to make sure that we're having good quality and the quality does seem good. But uh, we might be getting a little bit silly here. But basically, these these podcasts are for anybody else who likes looking up the nighttime sky. And uh, and today we're gonna we're actually gonna gonna loop back a little bit because we had received. Um, now we we do listener. I don't want to say listener questions. I always want to say listener questions because most podcasts do uh, listener questions. And certainly people have questions. Um, you, you can send them in. We'll, we'll try to answer them. But a lot of the time we receive um, like observing notes. Eh? Yeah, which is awesome. I love reading the observing reports um, from people all over the world, really. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. We, uh, we frequently get observations from several people in the UK. Um, I think we have a couple people in Florida. There's somebody in California. There's somebody in Japan, um, Texas, Texas and Canada, Canada, West coast <laughs> and West of us. And, uh, and then of course, just our own uh, personal correspondence with, with our friends, uh, from all over. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really neat to, uh, to get there, but, but Hey, you were just telling me before we, uh, we clicked record that you've, uh, won an auction on an eyepiece. Do you want to just tell us about that a little bit first, Shane? Yeah, I've, I've mentioned a couple times that my, my eyepiece wish list is pretty short. And uh, one of those eyepieces, though, that I've been wanting for a little while is a Takahashi 32 millimeter uh, orthoscopic eyepiece. Um, so TAC has the entire line of Abbey orthos. I forget how low they go. Uh, I don't know, maybe five or six millimeters. I'm not sure, but all the way up to 32. And, and 32 is quite a long focal length for an Abbey ortho. Um, there, there haven't been that many made in history uh, that I'm aware of anyway. Um, the one that comes to mind is a, a Zeiss Abbey ortho. Um, I think it's 32 millimeter. Um, and it was... Uh, those were released in the early 2000s and sold out quickly and are worth a lot of money right now. And the 32 millimeter Zeiss Abbey Ortho is like, if you wanted to buy that, if you could actually find it, which is very, very challenging, you know, I, you probably, uh, I'm guessing like a couple thousand US dollars for that eyepiece. That's um, a lot. It is a lot. Um, yeah. I've heard it's an, an incredible eyepiece, but wow, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, so the, uh, the tacky Abbey ortho has always been on my list, but it's one of these eyepieces that I wanted to buy used, um, because I'm not sure how much I'll use it and I'm not sure I'll even like it. Yeah. Uh, so when, when that's the story, I like to, I, I like somebody else to absorb the depreciation rather than me. So, <laughs> um, uh, anyway, I finally won an auction, um, off of, uh, by EE, which we talked about, uh, many moons ago or many podcasts ago. And, uh, I should receive it maybe this week. Uh, if not this week, it'll be next week, I think. So, um, you know, after I, I receive it and get to use it, I'll, I'll certainly talk about it and let everybody know what I think. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my wish list for eye pieces is pretty short too. I, I just like to get, uh, a five, seven and 10, uh, Nikon nav SW for, for a nice lightweight set, maybe the 17 and a half to, uh, 
wouldn't mind getting a mass CM at 32 millimeter. And I'd always wanted to try the, the 17 <laughs> millimeter Explore Scientific 92 if, if we're going to sort of sprinkle some cherries uh, on the cake. And then I, I really want to get one of the TOE Takahashi high power eyepiece, like the two and a half mil. Yeah, yeah, yeah those are supposed to be incredible. But I, I don't know if you should start your wish list off as my, my wish list is also small when... <laughs> When I had one on mine, <laughs> I was like ten. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, yeah, it's a small, it's a small list. It's a small yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Just a, it's like a, it's like a small open cluster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, exactly. Let's get to this. Uh, so we start with uh, Phil sent us a, a voicemail. It sounded like he'd sent you a couple, but this is the one you forwarded to me, um, and I listened to it this morning and, and took some notes. But he was. He was trying to do some some observing there, and uh, I, I don't think I don't think we'll we'll play it. Maybe we will play it. If uh, what are your thoughts, Shane? Um, I don't know. Let's uh, let's see how this plays out. If we have, um, you know, we try to keep these around forty to fifty minutes. If yeah. we have time to insert it, I will. But yeah. I don't know how long it'll take us to get through all of these, so I don't want to say for sure at this point. Yeah, all right. It's about a seven minute. Uh, message but he talked about i think he said he saw 17 satellites and four shooting stars um when he was trying to take a look for comet r4 atlas up in coma berenices with his 76 millimeter is that is that what it was 17 satellites yeah yeah i think that's what he said that it was a super busy night of satellites and um you know i think i'm behind in forwarding you emails so typically what happens like i just for all of the uh, listeners to be aware the the email comes into actualastronomy at gmail.com. Uh, I I keep an eye on that email account. And then what I usually do is, you know, I'll, I'll reply, but I also forward every single email to Chris. And then, you know, if, if Chris has any interjections or if the email was even directed towards Chris, then, you know, that's just how we kind of manage yep. it back here. Um, so I'm a couple behind in, in forwarding you, I think. So one is the original film message, which I'll forward to you. Um, but then I think Bob also sent us um, a, a video he captured with his iPhone, and it was the string of uh, Starlink satellites that were passing. Um, I think he was, I think he's in Texas or maybe yep. he's Florida. I can't remember. Um, like so anyway, it's kind of interesting to, to hear two different people talk about all of, all of these satellites in the sky. I don't know if Phil saw the Starlinks or if they're just, you know, general satellites passing by, but, but uh, lots of activity up there. Yeah, so he was he was mentioning this this activity. He was also wondering um, whether or not it would be possible for him to have seen our Fratless. He was kind of uh, on the fence. He he had hunted it up, spent spent some decent time there on it, and uh, was kind of looking for for our opinion. And uh, I th- I think we can give him our opinion, but uh, sort of with the caveat that. Um, there are kind of ways to to sort through whether whether or not uh, you, you have seen something, and and we'll explain that as as we go forward. But uh, our four atlas right now, I think it's about nine point eight magnitude according to the last estimate, so close to tenth. Yeah, 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 that's right. And uh, there's also so it's up in Coma Berenices right now, and it's actually yeah. really close to NGC forty two seventy eight, which is a, a tenth magnitude galaxy, and. Um, uh-huh. You know, so I, I did reply to Phil to say, maybe you saw the galaxy, you know, I, who knows? Um, I, I haven't actually tried for R4 Atlas yet, so I should, I might try tonight because I think we'll have decent conditions. Yeah. Um, so one, one interesting thing that 
I'm going to ask you about Chris is, um, so Phil replied and said, no, no, I don't think it was the galaxy uh, because over the period of time that he was observing the comp, well, this potential comet last night, that it, it's, it, he said he felt that it moved against the background stars. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, would like, I know definitely over, say, two or three nights, you know, if you were plotting a comet against the background stars, you'd certainly see it move. Would you see that movement over 30 minutes or 40 minutes? I, I'm not sure how long Phil observed it for, but I'm just curious, like, if uh, just trying to nail down if indeed this was the comet or not. Yeah. So, so again, there, there's no way for you and I to, to directly uh, verify uh, whether or not he, he saw it. Uh, I'll get, give a way to do that in a second. Um, but one thing, and I, I think Phil did share it back with, with me a few weeks ago is like, I was wondering where he was like sort of more specifically for, for a couple of reasons. Um, I did spend a summer in, in that, uh, in somewhat in that same area where he lives. So I was like, okay, like generally, like, where are you? Because I kind of wanted to get a fix in my mind, uh, having spent a summer there, uh, a long time ago. And then, and then the other thing is, um, I kind of wanted to know like what his skies are like. So, so having that information uh, actually enables me to, to dive a little bit deeper on it. So the comet is almost 10th magnitude and based on his telescope, his experience, uh, his age, which I generally know um, some of these things, um, he should be able to get to about 12th magnitude for stars. Um and this comet being just under 10th magnitude, I, I think with the wiggle room uh, of, of what he's using and everything uh, of about two, almost two and a quarter magnitudes, um, I think it's definitely within the realm um, of possibility that, that he would be able to, to see it. And, and certainly he's, he's getting some, some experience in, in hunting things down. Um, just depends on like how, like he would have to be pretty dark adaptive, but I think like, like where he's observing um, at his home, uh, I think I think it is reasonably dark enough, and in that direction is probably just a little bit darker um, than some of the other other directions he's he's observing with. Um, so yeah, so so did he see it or not? I don't know. I put a chart up um, showing where where it was last night for him. Like you said, uh, pretty close to actually the Coma Berenices uh, open cluster. Um, but the best thing to do is this. So could he see it moving with many comets? I would say probably not. This comet though is moving very fast, at least from our perspective on the night sky, it's actually moving like, you know, a a noticeable amount over 20 minutes to an hour. You'd probably be able to see it moving past stars. So if that's the period of time, then yeah, for sure. And what you do is uh, when you're observing comets, you want to hope for two or three nights in a row or, or one night and then maybe a night of cloud and then another night. And you kind of want to sketch it, you know, sketch the field, sketch the stars, and then uh, make sure you're using a wide enough field that you'll be able to, to encapsulate, um, you know, subsequent nights sort of uh, sharing those same stars. And then uh, you, you'd be able to sort of have a, have a record of, of that uh, comet moving amongst the stars, if if you're in doubt, right? So now mm-hmm. some people might have the experience to go and say, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I don't know how many comets Phil's observed. I think he's observed just maybe Comet Neowise. I don't want to speak for him, but I think he's just observed maybe one or two other comets before. Um, but like for somebody like uh, me, for example, I've, I've observed a few dozen comets. And so, you know, 
I, I guess I could get it mixed up with a galaxy or something. So I might do a sketch, especially now since I do more sketching, but, but I, I'd probably be able to figure out whether it was the common or not, but I have seen one. We had one a few years ago. I forget what, what it was. I remember it was really cold and windy and I don't know with, uh, with a guy I worked with and Mike and we went out, uh, Oh, about an hour East of the city at like two o'clock in the morning and observed it. I forget what it was. Anyway, it was right up high overhead and it was freezing cold. It was like in February or something. Anyway, um, and we, we observed it for like whatever comet that was for a couple hours and we could see it moving for sure. Like, you know, from, from, uh, from five minutes to five minute sessions, like we would observe it for five minutes, hop in the car and get warm and then go back out. And we would notice it had moved uh, significantly in that period of time. Cool. Well, you know, the, the movement then probably would be a strong indicator that he, he picked it out. So um, yeah. pretty good observation. Yeah. So I would think that, yeah, that's possible, but I would say sketch it, like try to try mm-hmm. to get it again. And, and he was using like a six millimeter so I don't know how much of a field of view he'd have with a, with a six mil. Um, but if he could get it in a slightly lower power field, so that he's able to, cause this one is moving um, significant distance over the nights. So to try to, uh, to try to observe it, at least, you know, observe it and then come back an hour later, you know, and, and observe it again and sort of mark it on those stars over the course of a few hours um, that, that might be the best, might be the best bet or over a few days, uh, and get as many observations in as you can, that, that would actually determine whether or not, um, what you're seeing, Phil is, is a comet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good advice. I like it. Yeah. Anything to add to that one or anything else from Phil? Uh, no, no, I think that's it. All right. Moving on to... Actually, sorry, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'll stop there. There is one more thing too, um, that I can't remember which message it was in from Phil, but I think it's the one that I forgot to forward to you. The original no one about, uh, anyway, um, he mentioned, so he's contemplating getting a Dobsonian, maybe an eight inch. Um, but he said so far, he's not really been wowed by deep sky objects and he thinks he's just going to stick to planetary and lunar observing but was wondering, like, are there any um, deep sky objects that he should try looking at that maybe will, you know, get him hooked and, and turn him into uh, also a deep sky observer? Um, so I'm wondering what you could say to that, Chris. Uh, I'll let you reply and then I'll, I'll share what I uh, sent to him. Well, I, I guess, like, personally, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to try to sway somebody into observing any type of, of object over, over another. I mean, shoot there's so many different uh, things to observe in the night sky. I mean, um, I, I know some people that just observe variable stars. I know some people that almost just observe double stars. Uh, I know some people that just observe the moon and the sun and, you know, or, or the planets, um, you know, and, and, you know, you and I tend to observe a lot of uh, different things and a lot of the same things and, and have a lot of crossover so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong if if uh, someone decides that uh, that they just want to look at the planets. I I can understand that. I love looking at them as well. I I also like to look at the the deep sky. Um, yeah, I think probably probably the thing would be though is is to really get to too much darker sites, and that's that's kind of where you do start to get that wow factor, and then mm-hmm. uh, many things actually begin uh, to look good. I think you referenced 
couple things in the in the previous episode, which is some of those larger like Malat clusters and like Coma Berenices, uh, Malat one one one, is a nice object in in smaller wide field instruments like like Phyllis that seventy six used as lowest power uh, and looked at that uh, or, or other things of that nature. Um, yeah, and and just like the the summer Milky Way and that sort of thing. But again, like uh, getting getting to darker skies is is going to be uh, where it's at. I think his skies are like um, close to fifth magnitude or something. But uh, but really not not until you get to into the sixth magnitude, uh, really dark skies, uh, are you going to really start to, in my opinion, anyway, really begin to be wowed uh, by the deep sky objects. You know, I, I think it is just just a little bit challenging once once there's any sort of real sky brightness. Like my site that I go to, um, that's only like ten minutes from home. Um, it's almost six magnitude, probably in one part of the sky and gets six magnitude. Um, and so in the brighter parts of the sky, nothing wows me, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, but in the, in the best part of the sky, sort of the South, uh, East, um, things look really good where, where I'm really getting close to that six magnitude. So once you get into a spot where, um, the majority of the sky is six magnitude, that that's when things really become uh, pretty spectacular. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of. Uh, my advice, I think, yeah, until you, you do get to uh, darker skies, then, then yeah, that the sky is just going to be a challenge to, to wow. I think, you know, think, think about the Milky way, you know, Mm -hmm. to see the Milky way from my yard, like there's a couple spots. If when it's passing, I can kind of sort of see it Um, need to see, doesn't really wow me Uh, drive down uh, south of here by two or three hours and uh, gets dark and (laughs) the Milky way casts a shadow and uh, I can sit there all night, look at the Milky Way without binoculars or anything, binoculars alone. I mean, reveal, um, you know, what a what a huge telescope just never will even show me in the city. So um, just a completely different experience. Anyway, that that's sort of my my impression. How about you? Yeah, yeah. I had very similar advice. Um, you know, nothing beats a dark sky when it comes to deep sky objects. And uh, the other thing is aperture, you know, so... Um, when you do get to a darker location, bring the largest aperture you have, mm. um, at least if you're hunting down, you know, galaxies and globulars and, and nebula, uh, more aperture will, you know, is usually much, or, or will show those types of objects, uh, much better. Um, and then in terms of which objects, uh, you know, my recommendation was pretty much the Messier list. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff is pretty bright and, and a decent size that, you know, modest apertures. And when I say modest, I mean like anywhere's from like three or four inches and up uh, are probably going to show that stuff fairly well. Um, uh, one of the things that amazed me, and this is uh, this I shared on Friday night when I was talking about small telescopes to the local club, was that um, in my little 80 millimeter refractor, I was really shocked the first time I looked at M81 and 82 under a dark sky. Like they looked like galaxies. I was able to see a little bit of distinction and, and structure within them with uh, a small telescope. And, uh, you know, the, you just can't underscore the difference a dark sky makes with these things. But similar to you, like um, it's not like you have to observe any deep sky objects if you don't want to. Um, when I started in the hobby, I was very much like Phil, I was 100% planetary. Um, but then I kind of got bored during this time of the year where there was no real planets in the sky to look at. Um, so then I started to branch out to deep sky objects and then I really enjoyed that for a long period of time. And I never looked at a double star. Um, and now within the last, I don't know, five to, I don't know, seven or eight years, 
double stars is probably 75% of my observing because I observe so much more from my backyard. Um, so I think a lot of astronomers go through different phases, you know, where they're looking at different uh, categories of objects or, you know, depending on where you observe, um, you, you might have different lists, you know, your backyard list and then your deep sky list. And, and you just sort of, you know, you'll figure it out on your own and, and you just let go in the direction that gives you the most satisfaction. And, and I think one of the, the only thing I will say, um, sort of about observing and I don't want to put out too many dictums or anything like that is not, not to try to rush through things. Like the one thing I noticed with, with some observers, not everybody, but some is that uh, they're just, you know, sort of hell bent on seeing whatever it is. They decided they want to see that night and they just kind of plow ahead and they're just like trying to take things off a list. And that, uh, anyway, in my opinion, it's just not the greatest way to, to observe, you know, you kind of get to stop and, and, uh, and really, really look at things, you know, and then I noticed that with, with those same observers, and it's always those type of observers that are just trying to rush and see, um, whatever it is that they've determined that they, they're going to see that night come hell or high water. Um, when, when it's not working out for them, <laughs> certainly all of those nights where things just aren't working in gear or weather or you know, man, there's, there's nights I get out and I can't find M81, M82. I'm just off that night. Right. And I should be able just to bullseye them. Um, and that's always my test. If, if I feel like I'm not finding things and I can't find those, then I, I just, I don't give up. I don't want to say I'm giving up, but I just kind of start doing more casual observing just because sometimes you're just tired or, you know, things just aren't going well for you. There's no point in just getting frustrated with things. And I find it kind of, uh, frustrating when I'm out there and people are kind of, cursing and swearing because they can't find stuff. It seems so, so strange to me that, uh, you know, even when things aren't going well, I just go, Oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'm going to, uh, often what I do at that point is say, what are you looking at Shane? I'm going to go look at that. You know, <laughs> and yeah, that's, yeah. that's often the most fun. Like oh, I'm looking at this double star and I'm like, wow, I usually don't look at double stars. I'll go take a look at that. And it's like, man, that's an amazing double star, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't even, wasn't even on my agenda probably like I, I am putting more doubles uh, and more variables on my list these days. But, uh, but that is, that is one thing I think that, that people miss out on when they get so hell bent on, on trying to uh, really structure their observing so much. So I guess maybe that's the other thing is um, don't just say, well, I'm only going to observe these type of objects or, you know, those type of objects or whatever. I think that that that's also too, too confining. Um you know, it should be, it should be fun and, and always, you know, always an exploration, um, into the night sky and, you know, and, and what you can see, you know, like, it's cool. I think Phil, you know, went for, uh, the comment. I, I tried it one night. I, I didn't get it. Um, but you know, I didn't get it, but I saw the spectacular Aurora display that night. So you know, right, yeah. it was like, you know, well, I got that, you know? And so it's not like I went home and was uh, frustrated because I didn't see a comet. That's, that's not at all what happened. Um, you know, any night out on, under the stars, you know, that that's good and dark, um, is an amazing night. So, uh, that, that is something, uh, something to keep in mind. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, should we move on to the next one? Yeah, let's move. All right. Uh, why don't you go for it? Well, uh, Bill Weir, who we had on, on the show, uh, gee, was that what three weeks ago? Or was that, when was that three weeks ago? I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like three weeks by the time people hear this. Yeah. Um, And, and so Bill was on and uh, talked about observing through, through some large aperture 
instruments. And then he, uh, he sent us a sketch um, the following week um, of uh, M35, and, which is an open cluster in Gemini, and Mars passing through it. And was that, th- I think that was through his six inch. It was through my little refractor, he said. Oh, um, was he, that his 80 mil then? Must be, yeah. I knew oh, it was yeah, yeah. Him. It says on here, 80 millimeter F 6.8. Yeah, I didn't put it in, in the note, but I remember it was through one of the, oh, and it said it was through my little refractor. I didn't read the whole thing. Anyway, uh, so he was he was listening to to an episode and and sketching. And during that uh, that conversation, we discovered that he also owns the 12 millimeter Spears Waller made by Glenn Spears in, in British Columbia, Canada, um, which was an old prototype eyepiece. And there weren't many made. And I own one of the other ones. Um, <laughs> and, and Shane now has it. So uh, I'm really hoping that, that you'll get out and maybe, maybe try to use that and, uh, and, and do some sketching. I sent you all those sketching uh, material. <laughs> you know, I, I was wondering about that. Um, I, so I, I got, uh, a new organizer, like it's a little clipboard thing, but it opens up. And I wanted to have uh, a better method to like, just contain all of my lists and charts and pencils and whatever. Um, and uh, it got me thinking about sketching and, and I thought, gee, you know, I better, I better sketch something because Chris is going to ask me about this soon. And uh, um, anyway, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. You know, what I, I want to do is uh, maybe start sketching the sun um, yeah. because like, it's very, I find it anyway, easy to look at a galaxy or whatever the deep sky object is, and yeah. I can put it into words. And and I think, at least for me, when I reread my observation logs, I, I can recreate the image in my mind. But I can't put the sun into words. Like when you see a prominence and it, all of the twisty and filamenty and the, like all of the strange detail inside of just one prominence, I don't know how to put that into words, but I think I could try to sketch it. So um, that's, uh, that's where I, I see sketching maybe fitting into my observing. So, um, I'll, I'll see if I can put some time to it and, and show you something. Anyway. Yeah. And, and look, uh, there's no, no pressure again, like going, going back to what I said earlier, it, the astronomy should be what, what people wish it to be and not, uh, any kind of, uh, onerous task. Um, but I think that's a cool idea. And, and here's the other thing is that, um, I haven't seen too, too many people sketch the sun, uh, except for two of our very close observers here. Um, I've seen some great sketches from Mike, uh, sketch. I don't know if he's ever sent you his sketches of the sun. He sent them to me before. Yeah. Yeah. He has, he, they're, they're quite good. Like his, he does it in white light. I believe he does it in white light. And then, uh, Kathleen who, who we had on the show back in autumn and Mm -hmm. she's done some beautiful, uh, sketches of, of the sun. So, um, the, the thing that I find that can be challenging is just, you know, when one's trying to get going is trying to, to figure out, um, some of the mechanics of the sketching. Cause I'm not an artist. Um, you're, you're probably a better sketcher than I am already Shane. Um, but, but like if, if you do run into kind of roadblocks or whatever, then you can kind of, and it's really cool to kind of sit down with, with them, um, and just see, like I, although I haven't sketched the sun that much, I think I did one or two sketches, um, but in order to kind of learn how to sketch, one thing I did is I sat down with Kathleen during the day and, you know, sort of sat there and kind of went back and forth with her to, to kind of learn a few techniques um, because sketching the sun, it's much easier to see what, what, what the person who's actually uh, creating, creating the work is, is doing versus end of the night sky. But 
you know, anyway, that, that could be definitely something to, uh, to give a whirl. I think she's going to come down to grasslands this summer. So oh, neat. Yeah. So we're going to, uh, hopefully you can join us, uh, you know, once, once the vaccines are all rolled out and, uh, yeah, she's, she's gonna, gonna do a sketching session with me. Awesome. So. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, Bill's sketch was really cool. It was neat to see Mars uh, with M35. Um, M35 is a, a neat cluster. I like that one. And, uh, you know, it's not often it, it, when you get a planet beside one of these deep sky objects or passing through it, it, uh, they're, they're, you know, it, it frames it quite well. It's neat to see multiple objects like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I really did, did appreciate Bill taking the time to, to sketch it out and send to us. I thought it was pretty funny that that he went and grabbed that old eyepiece and then and then sent the sketch off because we, we had that bit of a connection there and and the refractors too. I really want to get out and and observe through his uh, his twenty inch sometime and yeah. Get, yeah. get back up to that uh, that facility that he he volunteers at with the the twenty five um, from uh, yeah. Anyway, that that would just just be a really really cool experience. When, when I went that time. Um, it just was unfortunate. We, we were even having like beautiful, hot, sunny days. And then when we would go out to the observatory, it would just fog, like not cloud over it, like fog over <laughs> and start raining. So oh, yeah, it was just, it was too bad. We just didn't, didn't get the night for it. But during the day, like he'd have a solar scope out and we'd be looking through it and we were going to meetings and stuff like that. So, but, uh, anyhow, Hey, do you want to read the message from Chris in Florida? Yeah. Um, so just listen to your podcast from Monday. Uh, and this one is directed more at you, I believe. Um, yeah. With those Lumicon filters, if you take uh, very light sandpaper to the threading, it will free them up uh, really good for screwing them into things better. So I think you had mentioned that um, some of the Lumicon filters just didn't thread in very well. And yeah. uh, the sandpaper trick, I guess. I don't know if you've tried it or not to see if it fixes things. but um, I, I haven't. I haven't tried that. Um, I was able to get the Lumicons threaded in. Okay. Um, I, I think that I am going to try this and I, I'm not that handy a person. So I'm trying to be a, a little bit careful. And, uh, and the other thing is I don't want to end up with like any of the grid or anything inside the diagonal. So um, mm. I'm going to have to take the diagonal apart again. It's not a big deal, but, uh, but I think that's, that's going to go on my list for things to do. I actually, don't really have any sandpaper um so i'm gonna have to kind of i think i oh actually i think i do i think i have some for sketching i'm gonna have to dig i'm gonna have to dig it up anyway i gotta get my sketching materials ready here so i can uh, get out and do some some sketching um so yeah maybe maybe i'll dig it out take the diagonal apart and then try it i had not heard that before um and i really appreciate that because uh, some of the other filters just wouldn't thread in at all and i wonder if i do that i might actually be able to um try at least one of those. One, one thing I want to do is, is remount at least one or two of those other filters I have um, because they're more like broadband filters, which I do enjoy using. Uh, also, uh, these ones I got from, from Lumicon and Teleview are, are more line filters. They're a little bit more restricted than, than some of the other filters. And it's just nice to have, have a variety of filters in the field. So uh, definitely appreciate that. Uh, I thought that was uh, a really, really neat um, recommendation, uh, because that's a very common challenge that uh, I've read from other observers that for whatever reason, the different filters, maybe it's the paint is, is on too thick or what, I don't know. 
Um, but I've certainly experienced that with lots of other people and filters in the field. And so just kind of, kind of think that through a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I think what I'll do is I will try uh, a little bit of the sanding and I might try it actually on the, um, and so Chris Kirk, me if I'm wrong, but I might try it actually on the, how on the, on the filter slide itself, because that really seems to be where it's sticking. So I think the filters are okay. I think it's actually in that. So I think that's, that's where I may start first, but I might start by cleaning it. I might start there. <laughs> yeah. Well, nothing, uh, you know, sounds like a good approach to me. <laughs> and he sent um, us that. Yeah, he sent us a yeah, photo. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go. there's a little bit more to it. And he says, uh, by the way, below is a picture of my first experience with a Daystar Quark. Uh, this is with a 80 millimeter triplet and the prominences uh, model. So what he's referring to here is, uh, so Daystar is a company that specializes in like hydrogen alpha kind of solar observing equipment. And uh, one thing that they released, it's it's been out for a little while now, but I, I consider it still sort of a new thing. Um, but it's, it's called the Quark, and uh, there's a few models. There's a chromosphere model, there's a prominence model, and there might be another one yet. Um, but anyway, what this thing is, is uh, it goes into any telescope, uh, any refractor, I should say. I'm not sure if it works with, um, I don't think you could use it with a, a Newtonian or a, a compound type telescope. I think it would have to be a refractor, but don't quote me for sure on that. And uh, so anyway, this thing just connects. I don't know if it goes in front of the diagonal or into the eyepiece holder of the diagonal, but it converts your telescope into like a hydrogen alpha like telescope. And it shows mm -hmm. all of that incredible detail uh, in the sun. And you know what? They're, in my opinion, like if you're thinking about getting into um, solar observing and you want a hydrogen alpha uh, and you already own a refractor, you should really think about one of these because the price is pretty good. Um, now it's not inexpensive. Uh, I believe Canadian dollars, one of these things goes for about $1,500, which is a lot of money. However, where I think that this is a good deal is if you want a Lunt 60 millimeter hydrogen alpha telescope, I think you're paying over $2,000 for that. Mm -hmm. So I believe, you know, that with the Daystar Quark, um, all you need is this unit. There's nothing else. You know, you use all your existing eyepieces and your existing refractor. And uh, you now have, you know, one telescope that can, you know, work at night as well as during the day. And uh, you've you potentially, like, an, like in, in Chris's case, he has an 80 millimeter solar scope, like an 80 millimeter Lunt or, or Coronado would be thousands and thousands of dollars to get up to something that large of aperture. Um, so I've, I've been kind of intrigued by these because my hydrogen alpha telescope is only 35 millimeters and I think it's phenomenal what it shows me. Um, but I've heard that these quarks are, are quite incredible with the, the detail that they show. And again, you can, I could put it on my 76 millimeter Takahashi and over double my aperture compared to my little want. So I'm considering it. I, I would really like to um, look through one first. So I'm hoping somebody local buys one so I can, I can test it out and just see what I think of it. Yeah. I'm just looking at them on online here. Um, interesting. I, I've heard of them before. Haven't really, uh, you know, delved into them uh, more than just like a quick look. Cause I'm not, you know, and, and people have to remember, like, I don't come from a place where you see the sun all day. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so like solar observing always seemed like a little bit of a waste of time to me. <laughs> so, like, why would people do that? Because you never get to see the sun. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, these things they they do look they do look interesting. I see they're about twelve hundred dollars American, eleven ninety five, and there's a prominence model, a chromosphere model, and uh, yeah, it just sort of attaches to the telescope. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think they they need batteries to work. Um, like there's there's a little bit of science or, or technology behind it, but. Um, I don't know. They look intriguing. And I, I've read great reviews and like Chris and I had a few more email exchanges because I was asking him about uh, field of view and, and that kind of stuff. And he said with a 25 millimeter plossal, he was able to fit the entire solar disc into the field of view, um, which was pretty good. Because I, I know that these things operate like you need like a four times Barlow or it has a four times Barlow built into it. I'm not exactly sure, but essentially yeah. it, it operates at like F20 is, is what this this device requires. And when you're operating at, at, you know, an F20 focal length, your field of view would be extremely narrow, but you know, to, uh, to be able to fit it in with a 25 millimeter is pretty good, I think. So, so I'm, it, I'm very intrigued. It's almost like an eyepiece of, it comes, this is yeah. like, it's sort of like a strange thing. So I hadn't looked as, as closely at, at these now. Um, but it's it's an eyepiece that comes with a with a with an adapter. You can plug it into your car cigarette lighter. Um, you know, like this seems bizarre to me. Like oh, my telescope eyepiece became unplugged. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and it just fits in. Looks like it just fits into a regular telescope. They sell a package with a telescope for seventeen fifty for an eighty millimeter acromat. Like it looks like mm. a decent uh, acromat. So. I don't know. I'm always, I'm always like a little bit cautious about anything solar related. Cause I don't want to go blind. Um, and I'm also not used to seeing the sun. So there's, there's that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so the tuning here, I'm just reading about this, uh, from 5.5 angstrom to 0.1 angstrom. Um, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, you know, like that's really good. Um, and, and you want, the, the lower the angstrom uh, uh, setting, um, the better the prominences in the solar detail comes out. And mm. like my my little Lunt, which does really, really well, is about 0.7 angstrom, I think, which is quite low. Um, like a lot of the other, like say, I don't know, run-of-the-mill uh, H-alpha telescopes uh, will be closer to like 1.0 angstroms. So mm. this thing, was, again, it really, really intrigues me. Yeah, they yeah, have a few, few different few different types. They even have a five inch you can get. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I really appreciate uh Chris uh sharing that. And and if there's any other listeners that use uh this Daystar Quark, um I I would love if you'd write us, uh send us an email about your experiences with it as well. Um you know, or maybe, maybe don't, because you might put me over the edge and, and empty out my bank account. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, should we move on to the next one here, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go for it? Marvin had some, you were, you were talking to him about uh, audio settings. So maybe we'll let you read that one. Yeah. So Marvin said, Hey guys, uh, Marvin again from North Carolina. Uh, I listened to the episode where you were discussing the audio settings and it really helped. Uh, very easy to listen to now. So uh, I know we definitely appreciate that feedback. Um, 
And uh, we're always trying to make this better. And, and we knew that our audio quality is one of the issues. So we're, we're glad that that hopefully is behind us. Uh, Marvin goes on to say, uh, you guys do a great job and you have me hunting double stars now, LOL. Uh, I live under pretty dark skies, uh, Bortle 4 in rural Franklin County, and normally observe from my back porch with either a 70 millimeter binocular or my 10 inch Skywatcher daub. Uh, however, my viewing is primarily southwest to northwest, so I often observe things almost a season behind many others who can view south and east, but I'm having a blast. Uh, keep up the good work and thanks again. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, we appreciate that, uh, you know, again, the feedback, but also it's good to hear that you're, you're getting in some good observing and, you know, my selfish interest. I, I love when I hear people observing double stars because I think they're awesome. Um, and there's no shortage of those up there. There, uh, there's something you can do just all of the time. So I love that. Have you been to North Carolina? I have not. I have. Every, every child on the East Coast always wants to go and travel between North and South Carolina because at that border is a world-famous destination for, for young teenage you know, children everywhere, and it's called South of the Border. <laughs> oh, okay. That's where you can go and buy, buy fireworks when you're going on your vacation. Uh, in the States. <laughs> okay. when, you, when you're a kid on the, on the East Coast of Canada and never had the opportunity to have any fireworks in your life and you get to go there. And I think there's like a place you can go light them off or something like that, that we went to and uh, yeah, got a few firecrackers and Roman candles or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of a, a neat thing when you're, when you're heading down to the States and you know, anyway, I think they have a place where you can light them off. Anyway, one of the, one of those things, happy childhood memories of going to, through North and South Carolina <laughs> all those years ago. <laughs> well, now, now we know where to get fireworks, I guess. Yeah. Franklin County. Not sure where that is, but, uh, I remember, I remember driving, driving through, uh, through all there. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful area. So yeah, good, good that he's got some good viewing there. Like that's a lot further South than we are. So you can start to see some good Southern objects. Yeah. Yeah. He's at a great latitude. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. You sent me a message about the time and now my watch is freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) And we got Eric. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you you can. Yeah. We have a a message here from Eric. He sent this earlier in the week and uh, really, really appreciate Eric. Uh, sending not only his message, but, but his sketch for, for a couple of reasons. Um, so we all, uh, Shane, Eric, and I, and lots of other listeners belong to the RESC and uh, run um, some of the same list servers together. Um, and, and so we share our observations and, and other things. And uh, we've been having some challenges at the RESC with, with these uh, recently. And uh, so um, Eric was looking to to share some recent observations, and uh, you know, fortunate that that he reached out to us and sent sent them along. So, I'm just going to read this. He he says, and this is just this this past week. So on Wednesday afternoon at work, he received an unexpected uh, email from an avid visual observer who saw an opening in the eternal cloud from these past couple of weeks. And uh, when he got home, threw his gear in the car and headed east, which is actually in the direction where Shannon are. And he went like two hours. I think if we drove four, I think if we drove three hours, we could have met him there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have been pretty close. Wouldn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, because because uh, he's he's over in in South Central Alberta, and we're over in South Central Saskatchewan, which are only I think five hours apart. Anyway, um, he said after several hours of driving, I finally arrived uh, just after sunset. He was setting up this is the other person a twenty two inch Dobsonian. And then Eric, I think, had taken his agent suitcase dob, which I would like to see a picture of. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I, that intrigued me actually. What what is a suitcase dob? You know, it's obviously a portable one, but I'd, I'd love to see it. Yeah, uh, my friends in Ontario, uh, Peter Picure, he had built a series of I think ten inch suitcase dobs. Hmm. Anyway, and uh, anyway, so he said that uh, they were they were playing it safe, COVID wise, and uh, stuck to uh, using their own. Uh, equipment and said that the skies were amazing. Uh, Mercury, this would be Mercury at dusk, um, was just like a laser beam, unmistakable to the eye and the best that he'd ever seen it. And then the Leo triplet, he said, was like a photograph. And uh, what's cool about that is that he sent along a sketch of the uh, of the Leo trio, which is uh, uh, or the Leo triplet M65, M66, and NGC. 3628, which he kindly labeled for us on his, uh, on his amazing sketch, which I thought in the orientation almost looked like a face or something. (laughs) If you look, it does. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the Leo triplet, whenever I see it, it's, um, it always kind of begs that question that's been asked many times, but you know, how did Messier not catalog NGC 3628? It's right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. no, maybe it's, another topic for another time. I don't know, but yeah, maybe. But amazing sketch and what a, you know, an incredible observation. And, um, I love hearing about those nights because this is what really helps to motivate me. Um, you know, a lot of nights when you go out, um, the, the conditions are whatever, you know, they're good to not good. Right. Um, but these nights where like they're in, in, uh, Eric's words, absolutely amazing. These are rare nights and you know, that that's what motivates me to not stay on the couch sometimes because I might be missing one of these amazing nights. And, and when these, when, when conditions like this happen and they're hard to predict, they're hard to forecast, you really just have to get out and start observing and you'll discover whether or not it's one of those nights. But when it is, you know, this is when you sacrifice all, you know, sleeping and everything just to take it all in because they're just, they're so rare, but they're so incredible um, to do. So um, great observation. Yeah. And so he said that uh, he was really glad he got out, even though uh, it was, uh, was a school night, work night. And uh, he left the observing site at 1.30 a.m., got home at 4 a.m. and uh, only got two hours sleep before going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Um, you know, we've probably all been there before uh, after a long night of observing. Yeah. So, and, and so we really appreciate that, uh, that sketch, Eric. And uh, yeah, I would love to see the, the eight inch uh, suitcase dob. That would be really cool. I'm, I'm curious about that now, whether, whether that's a telescope you built or, or picked up somewhere. And, uh, and yeah, I'm curious, like, and you used a Teleview 35 millimeter pan optics. So I'm curious to, uh, to know how that telescope uh, balances uh, with, with that heavier eyepiece. So cool. So anyway, Shane, that's uh, that's all we have for the uh, for the listener kind of kind of roundup observing reports that uh, that we'd had to cut a little bit short in the past. So uh, not sure if you have anything else to to add or not, but uh, I think we'll uh, sign off here. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. All right, thank you. 
Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>